Hi everybody, boys and girls, welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here, and I'm with two of my best friends, Deborah Phillips and Gary Wannell, known to his followers as Gary Wannell, but in the family as Wannell. Now, Gary was here only a few days ago, but Deborah, this is your first time in the pond. How are you experiencing it so far? It's great. It's great. <laughs> and you were just saying that being here in Clarkenmore, we're actually in my town in Clarkenmore, brings back a lot of memories for you. This was very much you know, a media area. City Lit, the long lost cultural magazine, City Limits, had offices just around the corner. The New Statesman um, at that time had offices around the corner, and The Guardian were just around the corner, and I was quite often trotting between the three of them. What were you doing trotting? I was, um, at the time, I was one of the editors of a feminist cultural magazine called Women's Review, which had a very tatty office near Liverpool Street. And you like you like to be able to get out. Well <laughs> see other less tatty uh, offices. Well we were um, at, at, at that time there was quite a lot of exchange of contributors between mm. all those so the new statementsmen actually at that point were our distributors and our um, had had some investment in the magazine. As did Gary. You, you did too, Gary? Yes. You were an investor. Yes, and that, that £50 is worth a fortune. No. And uh, we should let know that during the period that we're describing, it came to be known as the Staggers due to its appalling financial yeah. condition. At one point, Women's Review sold the same as the Statesman. Yeah, but actually, what did us was uh, the irony is that if somebody were doing it now, they would survive better than we did because this was. When, when everything had to be typeset and it was those upfront costs of mm. paper and typesetting mm. and you know, now you can publish online and... Well we're seeing the attempted recrudescence of uh, Spare Rib, yeah. aren't we? Yeah. Which is interesting and got a lot of publicity but then seems to be a bit rocky. But Well I think the, there's, there's quite a lot of anger around the generation of feminists who were involved with the first barrier, that there's a generation coming and taking the name without actually consulting the people who fought on the hard to set up in the first place. That's my understanding. Wow. Um, but Women's Review, so you had contributors from City Lights, from the Standards, City Limits. City, City Limits, I'm yeah. sorry, I'm getting confused with San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, also a great magazine, um, and bookstore and everything. Um, <coughs> and the Staggers and the Grawnia. Mm. Um, sort of the North London left liberal feminist world. Yeah, not liberal, but left. Well, in US terms. Yeah. We have 50, people listen to this from 50 different countries, mm. and half the listeners are in the United States, so I always try to contextualise things. Oh, in, the, in, in that guests, sense, yes, you know, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And um, Gary, so what did you get for your 50 quid? A warm feeling? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> it's launch money. I mean, now there's this online thing where you can appeal for launch money, which is incredibly useful, I would imagine, if you're trying to get something off the ground. They had to go and ask friends, relatives, relatives of friends. Will you put anything in? Yeah, no, I, one of the podcasts was actually to raise money for a documentary about some um, women, indigenous women in Colombia, struggling for recognition, power, and so on. So, yeah, no, Kickstarter is a classic. However, what we're here to do is, in a sense, kickstart, at least in terms of the podcast, a wonderful book that is 
almost, almost, almost out by the two people I had before me. And I wonder if you guys could tell us a little bit about the book and about what it was like writing together and what you were trying to do and whether you think you did it. And most of all, the incredible pleasure that I know you, you got from the index and the proofreading. <laughs> yes, for romance, I would talk about. I have read the book, I should say, and it is wonderful. The title uh, is supposed to be a clue that it is, in a nutshell, it's about how commercial sponsorship appearing in all sorts of ways in the public sector gave the corporate world a very benign carapace beneath which all sorts of other forms of private capital involvement in the public sector were smuggled in, PPP, PFI, privatisation and contracting out. And you're actually being, actively being encouraged in doing so by um, the Conservative government of, um, under Thatcher. That um, my, I mean, my first interest in this was I was a freelance journalist working on Women's Review and doing quite a lot of arts coverage and arts reviewing and being very aware of the incursion of sponsors' names um, and sponsors' logos becoming more and more visible in public spaces like the National Gallery, um, um, theatres. And I met Gary and knew him as a sports sociologist and um, cultural studies person and said I'm getting more and more exercised about this. So there was one exhibition in particular which was a um, um, uh, uh, an exhibition um, on Native American art at the Barbican. The Barbican is also within view of where we are. Indeed, yeah. at the Barbican Gallery. Yeah. And I went with my friend Helen, who um, had done a PhD on Native American poetry. And she went around this exhibition getting angrier and angrier at the version of American history that was being presented. And we went and had some lunch and looked at the catalogue and the um, um, exhibition was sponsored by United Technologies. So I did a bit of rooting around who United Technologies were and discovered that um, they were um, uh, producing the technical controls for cruise missiles. This was the period in which uh, cruise missiles were landing in Europe. Uh, this, this is just the moment right, right. before Green and Commons. That's how long we've been. So it's before the women of Green and, Green and Common who uh, were spoken about in an earlier podcast about the Thatcher legacy were now mounting their remarkable protests. Um, just winding back for a moment, the title of the book. The Trojan Horse, the Growth of Commercial Sponsorship. The Trojan Horse, the Growth of Commercial Sponsorship, and the publisher? Is Bloomsbury. Bloomsbury. So this is brought to you by Harry Potter. <laughs> Thank you, J.K. Rowling. Bloom, Bloomsbury <laughs> Academic. Bloomsbury Academic. Another wonderful group of people, and it's out in September. September 2013. And Gary, just to wind back again, you mentioned a couple of acronyms not everybody may know. Yes. PPB and PFI, they sound terribly important. Okay. PPP, Public-Private Partnership. Sorry, PPP. 
um, public-private partnership, which is a form that exists around the world, I think, in various forms. Uh, more as invented by the Ford Foundation. The, the, the form that is apparently much more, um, not totally exclusive, but largely exclusive to Britain, is the Private Finance Initiative. Uh, and that's what PFI is. PFI. And yeah. putting it in a nutshell, it's a way of getting large capital expenditure, in effect, off the books, because private companies put in the money and the state then, in effect, catches up in paying over a period of 30 years. So it has immense appeal to chancellors, uh, to the financial leaders uh, of the government, because it enables them to kickstart a lot of big hospital and school projects in particular. Uh, but actually, if you read the analyses of those who looked at the financial arrangements, they turn out to be extremely bad deals. Uh, the classic one to check out if anybody is interested is the very first one, the Sky Bridge in Scotland, uh, which George Monbiot has written about as a case study, and it tells you a lot that explains everything else that follows. Mm -hmm. So in other words, the initial investment is made privately, and there's a delay of the investment in the capital costs on the part yeah. of the state, so it, they get the building. Yes. They have a huge interest loan to repay, yep. but they're not having to allocate vast amounts of money Up for front. the next X years. It, it becomes a problem for a successor government. Uh, exactly. 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 Nice. Yeah. Um, so, Deborah's title, um, Well, it Well, th this, um, to go back to um, how the book began, I mm. was getting more and more excited about art sponsorship, mm. and Gary was getting um, exercised about sponsorship in sport. And he said, well, what's happening in the arts now under Thatcher is only what has been happening in sport for a while. And we thought, ah, oh, let's mm. do a book. And we so this is, going back, this is going back then to the late 80s. It's going back to the 80s. decided to do this. Wow, yeah. so this is, this is a quarter of a century project. It, well, it's quarter of a, it, is for, it is quarter of a century's collection of evidence. Yeah. Wow. Um, and so we began collecting evidence, mm -hmm. um, me on the arts, Gary on sports, and also looking at um, government policy on arts and sports funding, looking at the history, looking at what, had, um, what policy was um, um, in, uh, under Labour in 1945, and what the big shifts have been, and the biggest shift was, was Thatcher. And, um, so we, we were working in that quite restricted field and I think at the edges becoming more and more aware of sponsorship in education, um, like McDonald's providing schools materials. Um, and um, They're so wonderful McDonald's, they care for the heart of the child. Nutrition like, packs. Like they care for the heart of the horse. And um, and at one point, Gary said, we need to talk about health and education and sponsorship there and this. And I was, we don't know about health and education policy in the same way that I felt quite comfortable talking about yeah. cultural and yeah. arts policy. Yeah. I thought this is actually outside my, my, my field. 
Um, but he was right, and uh, you know, as we began collating more and more information, it became clear that actually this was book, going to be a book about privatisation. Mm. Mm. And that's why it's called The Trojan Horse, because our argument is that was that sponsorship, commercial sponsorship of public space mm -hmm. in the arts and in sport was actually the thin end of the wedge that naturalised, normalised big corporate names being attached to what had previously been. So things that are considered public goods and are taken more or less outside the market, like education and health, yeah. in a sense get tested, piloted for privatisation through areas like the arts, or quasi-privatisation. I don't know if it's as thought through as that. But it is certainly the case that there was a familiarity, a cultural familiarity mm -hmm. with big corporate names mm -hmm. in you know, national institutions that had once been... You know, what, what Thatcher did was to say no institution, no area of public life is immune. Mm -hmm. um, you have to find funds. Yes. Yeah. And, and what yeah. was interesting in that period was how little uh, the state providers of finance did to remind the audience that, in fact, they were paying for the bulk of it. I mean, an awful lot of sponsorships were only providing 10, 15, 20% of the cost if of that, an event. If that. Um, and some, sport, wow. some sporting yeah. wow. events, um, you know, the, uh, the Greater London Council, as was, was paying a lot of the costs, and the athletics authorities were paying a lot of the costs, and the one thing you would see everywhere was the sponsor's name. Yeah. Very little attempt to remind the public that these other bodies were also supporting them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's true of the National Theatre, where sponsors have an entire room to themselves. Um, but you know, the bulk of um, funding for the National Theatre comes from the Arts Council. Comes Being citizens like you and me. Yeah. It, it's worth mentioning that one of the very few people in public life who's ever written about this. And one of the reasons we wanted to do it was it all seems to be happening without any kind of serious comment or analysis, yeah. with the one exception of Professor Roy Shaw, who was Secretary General of the Arts Council right. in the um, 70s, and subsequently wrote a book, and I think was one of the first people to recognise this spread out into areas like health and education. But otherwise, it was passing largely without note or, or comment, in our view. So... What would be some of the things that have changed over time if you periodise it, which is only one way to do it, by mm. political, not philosophy, but party power, from the Tories under Thatcher to Labour under uh, Tony Blair yeah. and Gordon Brown to the Tories again under David Cameron? What are, do you see yeah. a development that's linear, or do you see differences depending on the administration? None of them have reversed. No, uh, um, so she sets the tenor. She sets she set the agenda, and um, and Blair, in fact, cut the Arts Council even further, and this is spelt out in in the book. Um, what Blair and Brown did, and I think Brown may well have been part of behind this policy, was, and this is something that Kate Oakley. Has written about and George Udice, 
Both is, of whom are victims of the pod. Both of whom are victims of the pod. And um, was that there was some attempt to get sponsorship for more community-based yeah. projects, so that sponsors under Thatcher, I can only really talk about the arts, were mm -hmm. drawn to elite yeah. arts, um, like the opera, like um, um, the visual arts, like um, ballet. And it is quite clear if you look at the um, way in which sponsorship brokers are writing at the time. This is a whole new um, 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 profession grows up almost immediately after the Thatcher's cuts um, to the to the arts, um, which is sponsorship brokers. And they're very clear that sponsorship is not philanthropy, is not patronage, which is the language that Thatcher and Keith Joseph and everybody in her government was using. You know, philanthropy is the way forward. Yeah. But sponsors and sponsorship brokers are absolutely clear it's about brand value. It's also about targeting a specialist elite audience. Mm. Mm. And of course it poses huge problems for policy of arts organisations because sponsors come and go. And they come and go according to the trade cycle, their advertising strategy or simply corporate whim. Um, you know, I mean, one of the classic examples is um, Gillette, who are one of the, the very best a man can get. The best a man can get. Yes, this is a razor blade for anybody <laughs> who's not aware. Um, sponsored English cricket, uh, very early one day um, competition for a few years with great success. And then they did a piece of market research and they asked people what they thought of when they heard the word Gillette. And the problem was everybody said cricket and nobody said razor blades. Uh, so they decided the sponsorship had run its course and pulled out. That's funny. And that is a classic pattern that you come to rely on a sponsor supporting a thing, but then they will suddenly go yeah. for reasons nothing to do with whether your activity is successful. Uh, and it makes dependence on sponsorship funding, growing dependence on sponsorship yeah. funding, poses huge problems for rational policy and because you can't rely on it being yeah. there. It's also clear that um, it's the precisely those brands which have an image problem. Yeah. The first um, uh -huh, right. the first brands to, well, um, Thatcher, well actually preceded Thatcher, set up ABSA which was the arts and business sponsorship. Um, ABSA. ABSA. Art and business sponsorship agency. Yeah, yeah. yeah, arts and business sponsorship. Remembering all these lapsed acronyms yeah. is almost impossible. The, um, yes, we're, trying to, now, we're now, trying to move on. Now known as arts and, and business, but the very p first organisations to sign up to ABSA were tobacco companies, petrol companies, oil companies. Um, Image problems with e and, no organic link. And every time there's an oil spill. Yeah. Off you go. And um, there was a wonderful quote that Gary found about that the tsunami was a wonderful moment for sponsorship opportunities. Mm -hmm. There's complete. There, 
there is a loss sometimes of moral compass. Yeah, yeah. Well, so. in the case of the corporations you're talking about, I'm not sure they ever really have. <laughs> no. I think they. But but it, to put that in the public arena okay. to actually yeah. admit. The one exception is the finance houses who kind of got in there before they have the image problems. It's a preemptive strike. <laughs> yeah. So um, it it's a tendency that catches on that doesn't show many signs of. I don't think it's so much a case of catches on as that uh, most arts organisations and a lot of sporting activities had no choice. They were um, yeah. absolutely, you know, the cuts more than anything um, were uh, propelled them into having yeah, to, seek, yeah. to yeah. seek sponsorship. And there are all these organisations set up um, that um, um, rhetoric, rhetoric, public discourse is you have to you have to pay your way in the world. Yeah. Now in the United States, when these debates happen, there's always going to be somebody in the House of Representatives, normally a Republican, who says, "This is all very well and good. I don't want the hard-working checkout woman that serves yeah. me every weekend having part of her." salary, her wages, going on taxes that associate or that are associated with the middle class and middle class interests in another part of the country that mean nothing to her. Yeah, the, exactly the same arguments same. Um, were, were made and I had a look at some of the sponsorship manuals from um, America and it's quite clear that ABSA was modelling itself on um, American agencies. Um, um, and um, um, almost exactly that, that argument was made by the president, but I can't remember which conservative M M hey, MP it was. But what's your answer to that argument? Because at the populist level, it, it's, it makes sense. In the same way as, my problem is that of course, the, the, uh, there are all kinds of problems with it, but one of the problems is that the new method of doing it via lotteries is even more directly. If you follow the logic of that argument through, you wouldn't fund universities either, because yeah. predominantly still yeah. it is the social children of the social classes A, B, C, one yeah. who in the biggest numbers go to universities. Right. Right. And why should non-smokers or vegetarians support health services for, for lung cancer? Right. Why should the childless support schools? Yeah, all these sorts of things. And, and the fact yeah. is the, the economic system works because we spread the cost of services and goods mm -hmm. around people such that they are not paying only for what they receive. Exactly. I, I would say, you know, the arts are a public good that pervade everybody's lives. You, you may never go to the National Theatre, mm. but you will certainly see actors and writers who were trained. And you get them on television. On television, in movies. And where are people going to mm. learn their craft? And one of the, yeah. one of the most insidious effects I find find of sponsorship is that it rewards success it's you know in terms of of, of sport it's going to go to the elite sports mm. your minority sports disabled sports women's sports that aren't as yeah in fact in the case of sports got very clear and always has been the vast majority of it will go to those very few sports that have 
extensive television and within that to those events that get the bulk of the television coverage. It's a yeah. very narrow, there's a bit yeah. of gestural money going down to the grassroots, but it has nothing compared to the huge yeah, sums. Um, and and just, just to yeah. finish the point that what um, commercial sponsors want is glamorous events mm. where they can do corporate entertainment. Yeah. They want elite forms of art. Yeah. What's going to go is precisely those kind of communities, small projects um, that might that get people involved. I and mean, one of the, you know, the mm. most wonderful public spectacles was the elephant walking down this huge elephant puppet sponsored but not sponsored but Arts Council funded, which was there for everybody. Yeah. And yeah. You, why would a sponsor do that? And if a sponsor yeah. had done that, it would be. One of the most awful. popular things in the United States is that labor unions uh, sponsor gigantic rats, uh, gi gigantic, you know, manufactured artworks of rats that become mm. uh, that get tied down in front of corporations that won't hire union labor. Absolutely wonderful. I so people on their way to work, there's not a picket line in the conventional sense. There's a gigantic rat. I hate to think what the Daily Mail would do with unions paying for giant rats. <laughs> it's a story. It's a strategy that could backfire, I think. Well, one of the, 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 um, one of the things to keep in mind with this argument is the Olympic opening ceremony, which was designed and directed by people who'd come up through the arts institutions. Mm. It had no sponsorship and it was wonderful. I think it's generally agreed that it was wonderful. This is the 2012 London it, it, summer able-bodied yeah. Olympics. In terms of the kinds of groups that are going to suffer under these regimes, it's not going to be the blockbuster shows. No. What does it mean specifically for some of the groups you've mentioned? I'm thinking about uh, indigenous people, women's art, other uh, forms of art that don't come from or are not organically housed in what are called in the United States the major cultural institutions, mm. things like the Tate Britain, uh, the National Portrait Gallery. Um, I mean, there are dozens of them in this town, if not hundreds, mm. right? What, what seems to have been the tendency as you look over those 30 years that you were surveying? What? I think one of the things that's very clear is a, a, an impoverished cultural map mm -hmm. because it's, you know, if you look at West End theatres, they've all got jukebox musicals in them. It's yeah, Mark, Michael Jackson, Mark, Abba, Queen, Queen, going for God knows how, 10 years yeah. more? 13. Yeah. 13. So, yeah. Gary knows. Yeah, taking up yeah. Yeah. theatre space. Art galleries, major blockbuster shows yes. are in some cases sponsored by banks which actually own the art that is being yeah. exhibited. Yeah. Um, so it's impoverished, an impoverished landscape. Yeah. And, and I think it, it works the same for sport as it does for the art. What, what, what was very clear in sport, and I think it's probably has since happened in the arts, was a common sense grew up amongst sports administrators that you can't do an event without sponsorship. Now, I mean, it's actually complete rubbish, of 
course it's possible to do an event without sponsorship. Uh, it may have certain financial implications for the scale of the event. It might have meant, in the case of sports like athletics, which for a period were paying people under the counter, that they had less money to pay people under the counter. But it certainly was not objectively true that you couldn't do an event without sponsorship. But many sports administrators would have said exactly that, and some of them on record. Uh, you cannot do an event without sponsorship. So it became the, the common sense of the trade yeah. that yeah. you have to find a sponsor. Yeah. And I think that kind of logic has been forced upon arts administrators. So you almost don't think of doing an exhibition unless you can find a sponsor, because it just seems wrong. Um, so there's all sorts of subjects that inevitably are going to be harder. I mean, I mean, there's a kind of double bind, isn't there? Because on one level, sponsors, for the most part, don't like controversy. And one of the most interesting things from the 70s to now in sport is when a sports star uh, encounters bad publicity, yeah. the sponsors will often drop them Fall very quickly. Grace, the or, Tiger Woods or, even yeah. if, or even if their particular sexual preference comes out in the media. Why do you look at me when you say Sorry, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you're, looking, you're looking at the shard or smoke, all I can support. Well, I was trying to remember whether you write about this in sports sex. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, but, you know, of course, there are always, you know, it would be foolish to know, there are niche situations where yeah. a sponsor, for particular reasons, will want us in cutting edge or street yep. or... Like or, Beck's or, Beer, which will yes. sponsor edgy artists. Beck's Beer does? Yeah. Or did? Uh, 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 or did. Um, um, but on, you can get sponsors being really prim. And how prim is this? Tate... Britain wanted to put on a show of the Victorian nude and the sponsors withdrew because it... <laughs> the Victorian The Victorian nude. nude. That is prissy. Yeah. That is wonderfully prissy. Now, so I have to ask the question to both of you, what do Deborah and Gary want? By which I mean, when you talk about an impoverished landscape, Deborah, when was it not? What is the good era of all this fear? Well, one of the phrases that I kept echoing throughout this book was something that the manager of the Royal Court said, which is... The manager of the Royal Court, which is a the, pioneering theatre. It's the most cutting-edge, it's known as the writer's theatre, and he talked about the right to fail. Mm. And I think what a dependency on sponsorship does is to withdraw that right to mm -hmm. fail, the right to experiment, whether with you know, or in whatever aspect of, of the arts, um, that I that sponsors cannot be relied upon. They can't be relied upon to have not to have really pretty morals. They can't be relied <laughs> upon to keep funding. Um, that. I think that the arts are a fundamental public good, yeah. um, um, and that extends to museums and libraries, which are now under attack. Mm -hmm. um, you do not want your library sponsored. Right. And just to, to broaden it out, in you know, in education, if we can't manage to provide a, a public education that doesn't have to turn to 
fast food manufacturers for the support of scientific material about nutrition and health, um, we're in big trouble and we've got to do better. Um, and one of the arguments that's often invoked, and it's become almost a common sense of British politics for a long time, is that you cannot raise the basic rate of taxation because the electorate will not stand for it. And that has been such a powerful bit of political common sense that by and large, both the major parties, Conservative and Labour Party, have tended to subscribe to that and have felt that any manifesto which suggests that the basic rate of income tax might raise would be electoral suicide. Mm -hmm. uh, the Liberals did suggest that they would put uh, the rate up by tuppence and spend that on education. But apart from that, it's been a consensus between yeah. the parties. It's now, if you, rail. if you look, as I did, at some opinion poll evidence from the 80s, actually the evidence is to the contrary. Now, I know that sephologists would say there's a difference in people's opinion and how they actually vote. But even so, right through the 80s, the suggestion that people thought it was great that income tax was way down there and they didn't want any higher is refuted by the opinion poll evidence that we put into the book. It's actually, if anything, the reverse, that there was a certain amount of openness, if not huge enthusiasm, that it would be good if tax would rise if it was going to improve education mm -hmm. and health. Mm -hmm. And I think we've got to, you know, if you, you, you ask the question, what do we want? And I would like to see people struggling to change the political landscape. Yes. So the notion of raising more from taxation, not necessarily from direct basic rate, yeah. but from yeah. taxation, um, could actually invigorate the public sector enormously if we would simply manage to raise even 10% of the enormous sums which we now know corporations are not paying in um, corporation tax. If we'd simply do that, we would not be in the kind of deficit problem we're in at the moment and we would have surplus funds that could be spent on invigorating the public sector. Mm -hmm. Well, um, John Maynard Keynes, who was the founder of the Arts Council said that tax is what we pay to live in a civilised society mm. and I think that needs to be remembered. I think that there are aspects of life, I would say education, health, culture, which includes sport and the arts, are a public good, a public benefit that should not be ransom to commercial mm -hmm. interests. Um, that you know, if you allow private capital into publicly funded institutions, they are going to behave like private <laughs> capital. Um, they are going to get out of them what they want. Mm -hmm. they, they're, they're corporations, they don't have a moral compass. They, they, their motive is profit. Well, I'm very struck by how their discourse has become so powerful a part of daily British life, more so than it is in the United States. Really? Frankly. Oh, that's shocking. That is shocking. Uh, I, I mean, I'm staggered that it's very hard to have a conversation with anybody who is a technocrat who does not engage in a mimesis of corporate idolatry vocabulary, the maniacal vocabulary of management, and is not prone to the mimetic managerial fallacy of universities, bureaucracies, you name it. Namely, magically, things as they are done in the military are not to do with the state and are efficient and wonderful, 
and things that are done in corporations that are not to do with the state are efficient and wonderful without a shred of evidence to it's argue for this and utilizing language and beliefs that people in corporations don't even use anymore. They're so out of date. But they're also completely beholden to this mammon-like worship. It's extraordinary. These people should read our book because because I, and I was not expecting this to come out of the research, but what you found was um, in education and in health, there was case after case of huge amounts of public money spent on outsourcing what had been publicly um, provided and funded to private Firms. Disaster after disaster, corruption, fraud, wastage. And these, this coalition government has speeded up the process that Thatcher began, Blair continued, of awarding contracts to corporations that are on record as corrupt, fraudulent, incompetent. Inexperience. And inexperienced. G4S and uh, ASOS are only two of the most recent cases, but their their malpractice goes yeah. back a long and way. G4S did security for the Olympics. Yes. Well, it, <laughs> they were supposed to <laughs> until it emerged they hadn't recruited nearly enough so people, the and the army stepped in. And the army. And we just talk about ATOS, who were given the government contract for something which in itself is appalling, um, that people who uh, were unable to work on account of um, disability or, me or um, uh, permanent illness of one type or another, um, had to be reassessed, and if they were found not to qualify, then they would um, uh, lose their disability benefit and just simply count as unemployed and available for work. And this was outsourced to a company who uh, it now appears of all the people that they ruled as perfectly fit for work mm -hmm. and not um, qualified for mm -hmm. disability benefit, 40% of those people won their appeals against the ruling. Uh, and you know, one questions now need to be asked about what kind of experience ATOS had in doing this kind of work, what kind of checks were made of whether they were an appropriate company. Yeah. Uh, and this is just one example. It's been replicated time and time again. Can I, one of the most disturbing aspects of the incursion of private capital into what was once state provision is that if you um, allow... Uh, um, commercial interests into public services, mm -hmm. it may well be in the interests of that private company mm -hmm. for that business to fail, whether it's a hospital, a school, or a library. Um, let me give you an example. One of the companies hovering around uh, budget cuts to the provision of public libraries has been slashed. Local authority budgets which provide for libraries have been Slash. One of the arguments that um, Eric Pickles, the local government minister, has made is that libraries could outsource their work. One of the companies, an American, um, I think it's American that's hovering around this, is a building company called W.S. Atkins, w, also known as Atkins. 
um, a W.S. Atkins um, um, have their foundation in an evangelical Christ, in evangelical Christianity. You know, would you want a company that is owned by evangelical Christians to run your library? Point one. The other thing is they're a construction company. Why would a construction company be interested in libraries? Most public libraries in Britain are in very nice mm. late 18th century, early 19th century, late 19th century buildings in the centre of town. They're prime development sites. Yeah. I can't prove it, but... There's a logic there. There is a logic. And and um, the same could be said of uh, local hospitals, mm. some local schools. Yeah, opportunity costs would suggest make it not work terribly well, say that it's no longer popular, take over responsibility for the site, buy yeah. it from the yeah. state, tear everything down, and then create something that can be sold. Well, to the it's market. interesting how many of the companies that are now busy uh, picking up the millions of pounds available in government mm -hmm. contracts have their origins in construction companies right, right, right. who have reinvented yeah. themselves as service providers. Yeah, 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 as uh, agents of cultural control. So if we go back 30 years, and that's some of what we're reminiscing about tonight, uh, I worked in the Australian Public Service and there was the wonderfully named, at that time, Department of Arts, Heritage and the Environment, which was known popularly, including by people who worked for it, as the Department of Wine, Cheese and Trees. <laughs> <laughs> and was outside the cabinet, the inner sanctum, the inner circle of the most powerful ministries, amongst the so-called spending departments, things like defence, amongst the uh, so-called service departments, things like finance and treasury outside that. One of the things that interests me is when at different times portfolios like the arts get bonded together with other things, mm -hmm. like tourism yeah. and like sport. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now th that happens one sense is sometimes just because at the last minute you're literally dicking around with the back of an envelope and writing down, we've got to give that bloke something. It doesn't seem important enough. He's a bit of a shit. We'll add on an extra object. But, but there's also and what's the logic to yes. having arts and sport together but for you guys? There's an ideological thing which I think yeah. is of interest. If you mm -hmm. go back and look at Major, and Major was evoking themes of back to Victorian values. And John Major was the uh, UK uh, Prime uh, Minister after Thatcher. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and painting these little word pictures of people on bicycles and village greens and duck ponds. Warm beer watching cricket, and, wasn't that his... And that's right. At the same time as we suddenly had the Department of... Was it the Department of National Heritage? Yes. Which lumped in did. arts and a few other things. Because every, every time you get a new administration, um, they rename um, the Department of, 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 of Culture, which became under major the Department of Heritage. And uh, new Labour, this community projects, you know, that what culture is about is re-enlivening deprived communities, and sport came into that too. So it becomes this department of culture, culture media, and sport. sport. And I, look, I, I think there's a, there's a I, I feel ambivalent about this, yeah. because 
it always struck me as an unhealthy development that arts and sports became separate uh, in institutions. You have libraries and you have gyms, and libraries and gyms are very different institutions, and in the local authority provision in this country, they've always been separate institutions, and yet there's no reason why a library and a sports centre can't be in the same space. But it does relate back, funnily enough, to our previous podcast mm. and talking about that bifurcation in English cultural life between the, the sporting Philistine and the non-sporting athlete. Um, so you know, my own feeling is actually quite a good thing for sport and the arts to be handled in policy terms by the same section rather than separate sections because it, it, it is a bit of resistance to that separation. It's still, it's interesting to think about the mind-body dualism that is occasioned by, or referenced, indexed by, a thing called sport versus a thing called the arts, isn't it? I give you ballet. Mm. Mm. Right. So, okay, it feels as though the tide of history is against you <laughs> in this book. I'm giving you the pessimistic reading. What are the signs of resistance? There's always resistance to these seemingly all-powerful discourses and institutions, isn't there? There are always people doing something different. You mentioned Roy Shaw being quite critical of some of these tendencies at one point, in a kind of old boy way. What's out there that's seeing things differently in, in ways that stimulate you guys? Well, rather, Rage Against rather, Bankers is a kind of hidden subtext which has yet to find real shape. Rage Against Bankers? Yeah, an awful lot of people, regardless of what they connect it up with and how they thought it through, I think have a huge anger. And when I say bankers, I mean, I think that's shorthand for corporate greed, uh, these recent revelations that big international, especially internet-based companies, Google, the Googles, the Amazons, um, uh, appear to be manipulating uh, their corporation tax responsibilities. Um, mm -hmm. But it hasn't found, you know, it's there, but it hasn't found shape. Uh, I'm not sure but, why. I mean, and I hope our book is part of what will fuel that. Uh, there, I mean, there were points doing the research where you were just, your jaw dropped. You know, that this company had been had up um, academy trains, uh, teaching creationism, being awarded public contracts at huge public expense. Mm. I mean, it, it just economically it does not make 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 sense. I mean, we may be canaries in the mine shaft, but. Um, it's important to make a noise, um, I think. I, I think I'd also like this book to be a kind of warning. I went to um, uh, somebody uh, involved in community work talking about your, you have to be pragmatic, you have to recognise that this is the new funding um, landscape and it's a hard, hard world out there and you have to make deals that allow you to do the things you want to do. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things I'm really proud of in the book is there's a list of these companies that kept coming up. And um, I would want to say to community activists or arts administrators or sports 
organisation, be careful who you get into bed with and think about what the implications Safe are. Safe sponsorship. Mm. Safe sponsorship. Um, um, well, be careful. Mm. Just be careful because I don't know that there is such a thing as safe sponsorship, but there is something very different um, in being sponsored by a local school to being sponsored by BP. There's a debate which has yet to emerge. Cameron talked for a while and he's probably wisely dropped it about happiness and well, happiness is any sociologist will tell you is a notoriously difficult thing to try and measure or quantify mm -hmm. as I understand it one of the most striking findings of everybody who's tried to do this is that the happiest societies by and large are the ones with the smallest gap between the richest and the poorest mm -hmm. uh, and very often they are Societies that have a big and thriving public sector and a relatively high rate of taxation, preeminent is Denmark. Um, and that seems to me to be a really interesting notion. When you put it against what you were saying earlier together about, uh, earlier about neoliberal ideology and put that together with a stress, a, a sense which, which seems to be very common that people have in their working lives that work is seen as stressful and uh, a site in which the demands made on one are greater than one can readily meet. That is not a state of happiness. And, you know, there it seems to me are the, when you asked, you know, what are the reasons for hope? What are the um, uh, signs of potential change? You know, yes, the, gr the grave digger of capitalism is, is nowhere in evidence, quite clearly. Um, and yet, in factors like that, um, you know, there are societies which seem to score very well on happiness, and I'm pretty sure that Britain would not currently stand up well against that if, you know, happiness index mm -hmm. for, for survival reasons. Uh, uh, for me, the Olympics um, opening ceremony in 2012 was a real moment of hope because it was egalitarian. It was. A celebration of the NHS. It was a celebration of National Health Service. Uh, the National Health Service. It was a celebration of volunteers of uh, a multi-cultural uh, Britain, um, and it was. I don't know anybody who didn't think it was a, a rather wonderful thing, and I think what you've had. To, with successive governments is an elitism disguised as egalitarianism. Um, mm -hmm. Tony Blair talked um, about the, the rise of the meritocracy. He never read Michael Young's book, The Rise of the Meritocracy. Yes, nor apparently has Toby. Nor has his son Toby, who um, I disagree with profoundly on free schools. But the, Michael Young's The Rise of the Meritocracy is a profound attack on developing an elite group in any society. And that, Blair never understood that. And Gove's rhetoric 
now. This Michael Goh, the Michael Education Goh, Minister. Minister of Ed Education, is talking about wanting the best for children. He wants the best children. Yeah. He, that egalitarianism as a way of thinking about public space, culture, is not there at the moment. Well, as part of democracy. As part of democracy. We've got about seven or eight minutes left. I wonder if we could change tack slightly and talk about, if you like, the proxemics of the book, the up-closeness of the book, the writing of it. Uh, what was it like writing together? There were moments. A blissful. He said looking away. A blissful question. The toughest challenge. Um, on the whole, it was pretty straightforward because I covered the arts um, and Gary covered sport. Um, I covered education, Gary um, uh, covered health. I'd done some research on the Festival of Britain and the Millennium Dome, one of which was not sponsored at all, and one of which the um, Millennium Dome in 2000. Festival of Britain is 51? Yeah. 1951? Yeah. Um, and that was um, you know, a celebration of Britain in the... In, 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 state of post-war um, rationing. So I did that chapter. Gary put his head towards put understanding PPI and PFI and um, the economics of that. Um, I'd also done a bit of research on the big society, Cameron's big idea. This is a sort of fetish of the third sector or civil society, which has been almost completely dropped from Tory to Tory. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Allegedly, is um, a big part of how they see it. It was a big part of how they got in, or failed to get into power. Um, I, well, um, um, it, it was it was pulling it together. The most difficult thing was was the conclusion. Um, the, conclu the we knew what we wanted to say. And I, I'm surprised you so sometime after having finished the book, how angry I feel. I am really angry yeah, about a series of policies that have got us here. Mm. Um, so it was a passionate it, tone. Um, I don't know, you've read it, would you say? I, I think we wanted to have a logical, cumulative argument, mm -hmm. that it didn't begin from anger, but I hope that people reading the accumulated evidence will end up mm -hmm. as angry as mm. we are. Yeah. There was something very interesting in the conclusion, which I've been reflecting about since, that um, Deborah pointed out in drawing upon, first of all writing about a kind of re a, a restatement of Liberal Party policy in the Orange Book. Mm. Which is um, the in a sense, right-wing Tory edge of the yeah. Liberal Democratic Party, uh, the other bit being the part that was formed from the Social Democrats, who yeah. were themselves a split within the Labour Party in the early 1980s. Yeah. But the significant thing about the Orange Book is that all the Liberal Democrats who contributed to the Orange Book um, are now the active Liberal Democrats in the coalition, and the Orange Book was not read at the time of the election. I know a number of people who didn't vote Labour out of disenchantment, right. 
with Blair and voted Liberal Democrat. They should have read the Orange Book. But in the context of that, we've also there's been talk about red Tories and blue Labour. Yeah, um, this is the vote fast or opposite of the colours normally associated. Well, there's something going on about ideological clothing. It seems to me just as you know. Political strategists feel you have to win the middle ground. Yeah, you know, the extremes at either end aren't winnable to a different party. It's a problem getting them out to vote, but they're not going to change. But there's a people in the middle ground who might switch parties are the key battleground. And what happens politically, it seems to me, is that parties have a tendency to converge, not necessarily in what they're actually going to do, but in how they present it. There's a so, famous book on Australian politics from the 70s called Tweedledum and Tweedledee. Mm. Well, I think, you know, the appearance of the Orange Book, Red Tories and Blue Labour is, is actually yeah. a symptom of this, mm. that everybody's trying to do a slate of hand about who they really are um, in, in attempting to occupy this middle ground. Yeah, whereas both sides are spending vast amounts of public money to feather the nests of corporations. And I think the thing to remember is that it, you know, Thatcher was a visionary politician, whatever you think of her. You know, she had a new, not a new, but she had a very clear idea of how she wanted to be. Mm. And she changed, she broke the post-war consensus. In a way, I think um, Reagan did that in, in, Amer right. in America. Um, and reshaped the public and cultural discourse. And that has not been challenged. And I think we need to remember that it's relatively recent. It wasn't that long ago. And it hasn't been challenged by another vision. Um, one, one wants the leadership on the left side of politics that has learns from that and has that kind of courage to actually fight for a vision rather than tailor a vision to what the spin doctors say you can sell. There's a wonderful bit in Tony Judd's book, Ill Furs the Land. J-U-D-T. J-U-D-T. Sadly, recently died. Um, but really eloquent writer. And he's talking about the way in which Britain rushed to, um, after Thatcher, rushed to em embrace corporate culture in the public sphere. And he cites um, Leviathan and says... Thomas Hobbes. Thomas Hobbes, big, great book. And says, you know, a world in which there is no social fabric, in which communities, cultures are all about commerce is a very nasty place to be. And I think we're getting there fast. Right. Well, Deborah Phillips, Gary Wannell, Thank you both very much for writing this book. Thank you very much for being with us in the pod. And thank you for giving us the opportunity to talk about it. When it comes out, I'm sure that as we see the reaction to it, there'll be room for further discussion. And I hope you'll come back and join us once more. Thank you. Thank you.